Matthew 26, verses 14 through 25. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city and to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, guys. Okay, so anyone here doesn't know me, my name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. I'm glad to be with you on this uncharacteristically warm morning. Um, the Farmer's Almanac claims that we're going to have an early summer. So, for whatever that's worth, uh, it, means, it might mean good fishing. I don't know. For those of you who fish, that's what I'm banking on. Um, so, before we jump into the text, you know, uh, the the season of Lent begins this week, and there's sort of been sort of a resurgence of interest in the, the church calendar, which in, in general I'm for, but I wanted to, to just make some brief comments about um, practicing Lent in particular, just because I think there's some ways that we practice Lent that, uh, that are just counterproductive and, and, and you know, not, not very in keeping with the, the truth of the gospel. So first, if you're not practicing Lent, that's totally okay right? Like, Lent will not make you more spiritual. There are, are many faithful believers who have gone from the womb to the tomb, never practicing a, a day of the church calendar, aside from the basic holidays, um, and they, they, they've been fine. You know, like, they haven't been any less mature in Christ, uh, you know, any more lacking in Christ than someone who's practiced Lent since they were sentient, you know. But if you, if you, if you do want to observe Lent, let it be because it's actually edifying to your faith. Don't do it because you think it will somehow make you more spiritual. So what I observe culturally is we, we practice Lent. It's sort of this, this season of like afflicting our soul. And it's, uh, it's sort of ascetic, meaning like we, we're, we're letting go of things that we do in order to somehow be more in touch with, with the divine or, or, or whatever. Um, and, and so we, we spend a lot of time sort of, you know, making ourselves feel guilty during Lent, and we kind of go without, like, Netflix or chocolate or whatever, and, and we think it makes us more spiritual. And I, I think that that whole way of thinking about it 
is really counterproductive and, and not in keeping with the gospel. Jesus was afflicted for you. So you should not be afflicting your soul, right? Like you should not be undergoing this, this season where you're applying darkness to yourself. Jesus was afflicted for you. Jesus absorbed the guilt for you. And so if you're going to practice Lent, it shouldn't be this, this season where you're trying to just like make yourself feel more, more spiritual through, through works, essentially. I mean, that's what, what it comes down to. So I think that whole way of practicing Lent um, just needs to, to go in the garbage, and, and we should not do that. Now, here's the thing. I actually think that there's a lot of use to the church calendar. Uh, one pastor points out that you know, you're going to count days somehow, right? You're going to track time somehow. And if you aren't choosing how you're doing that, it's just going to be sort of state holidays, right? You're going to count time according to whatever day happens to let you off work. And so it makes sense to have a different way of counting time. So we, we have the major holidays of, of Christmas and uh, uh, Good Friday and Easter, and then it makes sense to sort of count down to those days, right? So we have Advent leading up to Christmas, Lent leading up to Good Friday and Easter, and then there's even a season called Ordinary Time where many Christians just read through a gospel really slowly over the course of the summer into the fall. So there's lots of use for the church calendar. It's a way to, to count time, and that can be really good. But I think for, for Lent, if you're going to practice Lent, here's how, you know, so this year I'm going to, for the first time, kind of undertake a really modest observance of, of Lent, and this is kind of how I'm approaching it, so I thought I'd share it with you. So if, if, you're, if we're practicing Lent, I think it should be a buildup to the joy of Easter and a buildup of gratefulness for the cross. So if you're going to give something up, let it be so that you're, you're making more time for prayer and for hospitality and for growing in joy, right? Growing in anticipation of Easter, growing in thankfulness for the cross, where you're thinking about the gift of, of Christ, where you're thinking about the, the victory of the resurrection, it's not this, you know, like whipping yourself sort of, you know, affliction of the soul, but instead it is a, it is a buildup of joy. But then also, you know, Lent shouldn't be used to guilt yourself, but it might be a good time of year to, to, to spend extra time thinking about how Christ picked up his cross and he invites us, tells us, commands us to pick up ours. So, in other words, if you're going to cut something out for Lent, let it be sin, right? If you're going to cut something out for Lent, let it be sin. Let Lent, when you consider Christ shouldering his cross, let that be this, this fixture in every year where you begin to, to think, like, I've been told to shoulder mine, right? Where it becomes, again, a reminder of, like, I'm going to pick up my cross. And so at the end of the day, I think Lent can be really, really useful to... to to, to Christians, if, if it becomes a, a sort of an urging toward discipleship and, and a reminder of great overflowing joy. That, I think, is, is a Lent worth, worth celebrating. I think the other one um, is the sort of thing you do before the cross happens. The cross has happened. And so we should, we should practice the Christian year as though the wrath of God has been absorbed in the body of Christ, and Christ has risen triumphant from the grave. That's, that's the sort of Lent we should practice. So, just want to throw that out there. We're in the final chapters of Matthew, what's sometimes called the passion narrative of Matthew. So it's Matthew narrating the suffering and the death of Jesus. And the way that Matthew does it is it's, it's sort of a number of different storylines that sort of are all interweaving. So you're getting like 
you know, Judas betraying Jesus at one moment, and then the next moment it's the Lord's Supper, and then you have Judas going away, and then a narrative about Peter and the trial of Jesus. So it's lots of different storylines overlapping. And each of those, I mean, you're supposed to be tracking with each of those characters along the way, and they each are sort of informing each other. It's awesome reading. It's tough preaching. It's tough preaching just, just like sort of go straight through. And so instead of just going straight through as, it's, as Matthew presents it to us, we're going to take it character by character for a couple weeks. So this week we're going to do Judas. Next week we're going to do the, the Lord's Supper. And then I think after that we'll, we'll do Peter. So that's kind of how we're going to do it. Where we're, we're, you know, so we're pulling from multiple parts in the narrative to piece together what different characters are doing. So I think that, that will actually get us closer to to what Matthew's about here. So there, there's, there's, you know, Judas is kind of this interesting character. We're doing the story of Judas. He's the betrayer of Jesus. He's the one responsible for sort of hurrying along the arrest of Christ. Jesus was likely to be killed whether or not Judas turned him in. I mean, we saw that uh, last week where the, where the chief priests and elders, I mean, they're, they're intent on killing him, but Judas sort of speeds things up. So he, he's Jesus's betrayer. We're going to cover that today, as well as his suicide. Judas is complicated, you know, uh, and he draws a lot of fascination from, from a lot of folks, especially in media, because he, he, he kind of, I mean, he's a betrayer, but he also almost comes across like a tragic figure, right? He, he seems so inwardly conflicted. He, he betrays Jesus, but then he's just emotionally destroyed by it, right? And so he, he's kind of this fascinating dude. So he's, he's sort of a, a walking contradiction, there, there's been a lot of media portrayals of him. I, I thought I'd give a couple examples just for fun. So if we can go to the first one. So this is Carl Anderson. He played Judas in the 1970 rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. He was both on the stage and in the film. He had a stunning voice. If you have not heard Heaven on Their Minds, just YouTube that now. I mean, right? It's just, it's that good. It's just like, it's a very impressive song and he just, he slays it. Carl Anderson was was... A great singer, great actor. So the way that he, he, his Judas is sort of this revolutionary. He, he looks up to Jesus. He, he admires him. He sees Jesus as the man who could kind of change the world. If only he would just quit associating with the wrong types of people. From, from, from Carl Anderson's Judas's perspective, he, he, he thinks that people are sort of convincing Jesus that he's God and Jesus is kind of letting them. So he thinks Jesus is attracting too much heat as well. You know, he, he senses that the authorities are kind of pressing in, so he wants Jesus to just kind of slow down the movement. And of course, in, in Jesus Christ Superstar, he ends up betraying Jesus. But Andrew Lloyd Webber, he, he, he wants to, to give us this sympathetic Jesus. I mean, the, the play, sympathetic Judas, the play really centers on him. So he, instead, Judas, he, he turns Jesus in because he thinks it's the only hope for the movement. Right? So it's like, if Jesus dies, then the movement will continue, it'll have its martyr. And actually, the thing that, that the chief priests and the elders use to convince Judas to betray Jesus in the movies, they say, hey, here's 30 pieces of silver, you can give it to the poor. And he's like, all right, fine, I'll do it. So that's the, the Andrew Lloyd Webber Judas. He, you know, he turns Jesus in, and then he's, he's overwhelmed by guilt. Uh, there's this really moving moment before he kills himself where he, you know, he looks up at the camera and it works perfectly. I mean, it's not cheesy. Or he looks up at the camera and says, like, could he love me too? You know, he's asking, could, could Jesus love me too, his betrayer? I think what we're going to see today is that that's a question that would have been far more on Peter's mind than Judas's mind. But in any case, racked with guilt, he hangs himself. And, and so the movie captures a lot of the, the conflicted stuff 
about Judas, but, but puts him in this really sympathetic light. It's kind, of, it's kind of out there. But it's not the most out there. So the next one, this is Harvey Keitel playing Judas in The Last Temptation of Christ. So in this version, which, but Harvey Keitel playing Judas, this is something that only Scorsese would do, and it's something only Scorsese could pull off. Like, I mean, just a New York gangster type. Willem Dafoe plays Jesus. It, it's just, so in any case, uh, Last Temptation of Christ, the, the premise, it was based on a book by a, by a Greek novelist and, and spiritualist. So the premise is that, that Jesus needs to die. He, he knows that God wants him to die. But how's that going to happen when all these people like him so much? And so the, the story's retold with Judas kind of being the most loyal disciple. He's the one who's so devoted to Jesus that he is willing to, to even betray Jesus if that's what Jesus wants, right? And so there's this, there's this kind of moving scene between Defoe and Keitel, you know, between Jesus and Judas where, where Jesus gets Judas to agree and, and Judas just breaks down into sobs. Keitel kills it like he does any role he plays. Um, and then, you know, he, so he betrays Jesus and then it, it, it redoes the whole kiss in the garden too. So the kiss between Judas and Jesus then is this kind of touching moment because it's, it's Judas kissing him goodbye, right? So it, it, it reframes the entire narrative of, of their relationship so that, you know, it's trying to make sense of, of all this, this complicated stuff in, in Judas. So it's like, oh, well, maybe he actually was the best disciple. Not the worst, but the best one. Um, so we can go to the next slide. This is a, a classic Greek icon, uh, Greek Orthodox icon of, of the kiss in the garden, the betrayal of Christ. So who was Judas? Who was Judas? Judas has turned out to really capture the imagination of our culture. We're, we're attracted to how conflicted he is, how complicated. And you get this impression that some folks kind of see him as the most human of all the figures in the gospel. Like he's someone we can sort of relate to. Uh, in Jesus Christ Superstar and Last Temptation of Christ, we relate to Judas because he's sort of noble but misunderstood, which of course is how we see ourselves. <laughs> right? We see ourselves as noble and misunderstood, so we're kind of moved by him. And what I think we're going to find is that who Judas was, what his motivation was, that was all pretty clear to Matthew. It was pretty clear to Jesus, and there is something tragic about him. There definitely is something to pity. And there's even something relatable about him, but not because deep down he's just as noble as we are. It's because deep down he's just as compromised. It's not because he's just as noble as we are. It's because deep down he's just as compromised as we are. And so today we're just going to look through three scenes with Judas. We're just going to kind of walk through the story. I'll share some reflections at the end, but, but mostly I just want us to, to sort of feel ourselves carried along by the, by the story, and, and hopefully I can, I can accomplish that. So we're kind of doing a, a little bit of a character study. So three scenes with Judas. The first scene takes place immediately after the anointing of Jesus at Bethany. So you'll remember last time we, we talked about this flashback that, that Matthew inserts into the, the, the narrative. He leaps back to when Jesus is visiting this house in Bethany, a little town outside Jerusalem, and a woman walks in and she anoints him. And, and Jesus makes a point of saying that, that she's anointed him for his burial. She, she's prepared him for his death. So all along, Jesus has been predicting his own death. We, we've seen it a number of times throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And as a disciple, you'd have heard him do this 
over and over and over again. At first, it probably sounded preposterous. Like, who would want to kill you, Jesus? You're, you're awesome, right? Also, you're, you're supposed to be Messiah. You dying a terrible death doesn't fit. And so Peter actually rebukes him. One of his disciples actually says, far be it from you, Lord. You know, but Jesus keeps insisting over and over that he, that he is going to die. But not only that, but, but somehow he must. Somehow him dying is central to his mission. It is the reason why he came. And so as a disciple, you'd, got, you'd probably be following him for these three years, and the question would, would start to come to the forefront of your mind of, like, how serious is he? I mean, is this just a, one of the many metaphors that he's laying down, or is, is this serious? And then, then you'd watch as more and more heat starts coming on Jesus, and he just keeps right along, almost like he's trying to provoke the leadership of the Jewish religious authorities to kill him. And then there at Bethany, you'd have this moment where Jesus is saying his death is right on top of him, and you'd realize he's serious. He, he's determined to die. And this seems to be the trigger for Judas. So, so literally immediately before the, the, the text, you know, the text opens with then one of the 12. So Im- immediately before this, Jesus is anointed. And then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? So this seems like it's the trigger for Judas. He watches Jesus get anointed and he realizes like, man, all right, he's not going to change his mind. And so Judas decides that if Jesus is going to die, then he's going to die. But I'm going to profit off of it. If Jesus is going to go down, I'm going to make it so I can profit off of his death. They paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. For all of Jesus' ministry, he's been announcing the coming of God's kingdom, uh, which is something that the Jews had been waiting for for a long time. And God's kingdom meant the restoration of all things, it meant God's people being sort of reconstituted, brought, brought together in a, in a new way. It meant good things. But in the imagination of, the, of many Jews, it also meant this massive reversal of power immediately, right? Like the Jews were going to be on top. When God's kingdom comes, it means that God's people are on top. And so when Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he's performing miracles and his teaching is like nothing anyone, anyone's ever heard, you know, they're going to believe he's really the one who's going to bring the kingdom, but they're going to think about that in a different way. They're going to think, all right, we're going to be on top again. God's kingdom is here. God's people are going to be on top again. And so what we've seen in Matthew is that Jesus is it's constantly correcting these, these wrong ideas about the kingdom and, and trying to replace them with, with true ideas. So he picks a, a bunch of disciples. He starts teaching them about the kingdom It's a kingdom that comes about through costly love. It's a kingdom that grows slowly and secretly, like yeast inside dough or a seed in the earth. It's a kingdom that's of inestimable value, like a pearl of great price, but it's also a kingdom that comes right alongside suffering, like the suffering of John the Baptist or like the suffering of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, like Jesus mentions in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus, what he's doing is he's reshaping his culture's idea of God's kingdom. He's spending a lot of time reshaping his culture's idea of God's kingdom. It's a kingdom of glory, yes, but that kingdom comes about in a very specific way, through a cross. 
Jesus will pick up his, and you must pick up yours. So this is strange teaching to a lot of people, and the Gospels are, are full of stories of people leaving Jesus precisely because they can't stomach the teaching. They want the kingdom, but they aren't interested in the way the kingdom comes. They want Messiah to save, as long as that means Messiah puts them on top. They want Messiah, but not a crucified one. I wonder if Judas fell into this category. He must have had a reason for following Jesus in the beginning. He must have had a reason, right? He followed Jesus for three years, and it definitely wasn't a cakewalk, right? I mean, like this, Jesus had no place to lay his head. They were not wealthy at all. I mean, they, they were constantly under uh, persecution. You know, so Judas had to have some kind of reason to follow him that whole time. So what was it if it wasn't comfort? Judas puts up with it, and it's probably because Jesus is genuinely full of power. And, and Judas is... is you know, genuinely sees the potential, and he sort of sees Jesus as being this potential leader of, of a great movement. But it seems like he only put up with it because he thought that at some point he was going to profit from it. Jesus was kind of a promising venture, and so Judas is excited to get on the ground floor. The way of Judas is the way that follows the Lord so that we can be on top. It's the way that follows Jesus so long as Jesus will cater to me, so long as Jesus will follow my agenda. When following Jesus puts us on the margins, when we start to become irrelevant, or when we may even face mockery, contempt, whatever, the way of Judas questions whether this was the right kingdom after all. Jesus really means what he says. Glory will come. But the way there is not by revolution. We don't take part in the kingdom of Jesus by following the ways of the world. The way of the kingdom comes, the way the kingdom comes is always by a cross, always by the way of costly love. Jesus had to die. And he had to die to bring together a people for God, and that people for God will follow in his footsteps. The, the, the way of Jesus doesn't change. We too pick up our cross. The kingdom only comes one way. And so Judas says, well, I'm going to profit from Jesus one way or another. Jesus is going to die either way. The authorities are after him. But Judas, he's a good entrepreneur. He reads the market. He finds that there's a niche. There's a demand that he can supply. And so he turns Jesus over. And that's the first thing that we learn about Jesus or Judas. Judas wanted the kingdom, but not the way the kingdom comes. So here's the next scene. This is verses 17 to, to 25. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were very sorrowful and, and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. So the death of Jesus took place during the, the week of the Passover festival, which is a festival that, that Jews practiced every year to, to commemorate their freedom from Egypt. So it was a, an annual reminder of the way that God had liberated them out of Egyptian slavery. So a huge festival and has major significance for, for what Jesus came to do. So we're going to talk more about that next week. But Jesus arranges to eat the Passover with his disciples. They, they all get to the house and they're, they're all sitting around like, like a big family. I mean, you typically practice this with your family and they start eating. And I think to, to get us into the scene, we, we've got to realize how tense this meal probably would have been. So to realize why, you've got to think about, all, again, all this heat that Jesus has drawn to himself over the week of the festival. So it probably started when he rode into the city on a donkey followed by a parade of country folk. When he rode in on a donkey, that was a, a direct reference to a, a prophet saying that the great king of Israel was going to make himself, was going to announce himself by riding into the city on a donkey. It was an unmistakable thing that Jesus had done. So there's, there's country folk behind, you know, in front of, you know, behind him, like celebrating, and, and then folks in front of him realize the significance, and they're confused, and some of them are excited. Huge commotion. So Jesus announced himself that way, and that didn't make very many people happy. Then he went to the temple and stopped all the proceedings of the temple to basically say, God doesn't want this anymore. This is, you, you have no right to approach him. God is rejecting his people. And, and so he, he calls down judgment on the, the nation for, for failing to, to be what God called them to be. And, and he sort of announces that he's making a new people around himself. Very controversial. Also, there's been just fights with religious leaders all week long. So most of, of what we've been walking through uh, since the fall has been these, these arguments that Jesus has had with religious rulers. And so more and more and more, there is a target on Jesus' back, and, and all the disciples have to know, right? And so they're having this meal with him, knowing that he is more hated than he has ever been, that there are probably people after him. And then right along the way, Jesus just said, hey, in two days, I'm going to die. And so they're having this dinner with him, and they, they've got to be thinking, like, is, is this the last meal? Which it is. I mean, you know, but their thing is, is this the last meal? Is that the last thing that I'm going to hear him say? I mean, it's just, you know, already very tense, very sorrowful. And then right in the middle of all that, Jesus drops this bomb, right? He says that this terrible event that's going to come about is going to come about because one of the disciples is going to turn him in. And so now there's suspicion at the table. It's like, one of us? And the disciples, it says, are sorrowful. The original language literally says they grieve exceedingly. And you understand why, because they're sitting there and just thinking, like, how could this get any worse? And it's, very, it's this very poignant moment, but each one of them turns to Jesus and asks, is it me? Am I going to be the one? And it's this powerful moment because each and every one of those disciples realized that it could be. That they, that they aren't the sort of 100%, you know, sold out person that they ought to be. Each one of them deep down has the sense that like, I could be broken. Somebody could break me. And I would do it. 
And so they're, they're desperately asking, like, is it me, Lord? They somehow know that they could turn out to be the one responsible. And, and Jesus answers with this very vague response. He doesn't narrow down who, who it is. He just says, it's, it's one who has dipped his hand in the dish with me, which, of course, is all of them. I mean, they're all sharing this table with him. But he, he says it to emphasize the kind of, the kind of betrayal, that this is an intimate betrayal. I mean, they're sharing a table together. They're sharing the Passover together, which is something you do with family. So it's like a family member betrays a family member. It's, so, it's someone who's dipping their hand in this dish with me right now. And Judas is sitting there listening to all of this. And he's realizing that, okay, Jesus is, is on to the fact that a disciple has sold him out. He knows that. Maybe Judas still wonders, like, does he know it's me? Jesus says these very harsh words for whoever it is. They would be better if they had not been born. So Judas is sitting there listening to all this, and he's noticing everyone around at the table is, is doing this whole is it me thing. And so he's going to do that too. And he asks, is it I, Rabbi? So we've, we've seen at a number of points in the Gospel of Matthew that Matthew is a genius storyteller. So he communicates a lot with very little, and tiny details matter. This is one of those moments. So in the entire book of Matthew, Jesus gets called a lot of things. Son of man, Messiah, Lord. He also gets called teacher. Throughout the whole book, Jesus is called teacher. He's called, called so rabbi. And he's called that by all, by all kinds of people, by lawyers, by, by religious authorities, by rich young men, but never by a disciple. The disciples in the book of Matthew never call him teacher. They never call him rabbi. Jesus is only called teacher. He's only called rabbi by people who do not follow him by people who are eventually going to turn away from the way of Jesus. He's only ever called teacher by non-disciples. So Matthew has set us up for this gut punch here, where the disciples are, are all asking, like, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Lord, Lord, Lord. And then Judas responds and says, is it I, Rabbi? And everything we need to know is packed in that one word. Rabbis teach Lord's rule. Rabbis suggest Lord's command. Rabbis instruct Lord's commission. You can graduate from a rabbi. Eventually, you can even become one but you don't graduate from a Lord. Jesus is more than a teacher to us. As Christians, what it means to be a Christian is to see Jesus as more than just a teacher, just some other person in touch with kind of common sense wisdom. He is more than that. He is more than just a helper along the way to reaching your goals. He is not a figure sent to us to just reaffirm everything we already wanted to believe about ourselves and the world. He is the Lord. Judas likes Jesus so long as Jesus is a helper. 
so long as Jesus is kind of in on Judas's agenda. But he knows, just as the other disciples do, that Jesus didn't come as a teacher. He came to claim people. He came to have authority. He came to claim obedience. He came to rule. And it's incredible to me how controversial that is for us, that it's uncomfortable for us to see Jesus as Lord. And it's all just because we have just shot up our individualism with steroids, where we think no one has a claim on me. On me. But Jesus is saying, he does. And a disciple is someone who is going to put themselves under that authority and say, the outcomes I'm after will be the outcomes you're after. I will answer to you. And we in our culture think of that as some kind of subjugation, like some kind of humiliation, as though we are diminished, we are made less by, by just being all out obedient to the Lord. Like to even talk about obedience feels weird to many of us in our culture, where it's like, yeah, but I should just answer to myself, right? Kids are obedient to their parents. Not as much anymore, though. But they're supposed to be, and we're still like, someone okay with that? But adults, we feel like we're made less, we're diminished. And yeah, I think about the words of G.K. Chesterton that said that we are taller when we kneel. But those of us who have who have known what it is to follow the way of Jesus, realize that in obedience, there is true dignity. But you have to obey the king. That's the second thing we learn about Judas, is he wanted the kingdom, but he didn't want the king. He didn't want the Lord. So I'm going to jump ahead. We're going to skip the betrayal in the garden because we're going we're to do that later. So we're going to skip to, to chapter 27. It's going to be verses 3 to 10. And I think I'll just read that now. Then when Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Take care of it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful for us to put these in the treasury. It's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, the Lord directed me. So at this point in the narrative, Judas has betrayed Jesus. Jesus has, has undergone uh, the first bit of his, his trials, and he's been sent off to Pilate. And all along the way, Jesus has, has held his composure. He never crumbles. He never stops being exactly Jesus all along the way. And then he's handed over to Pilate, who's a Roman gover governor. And that's, that's, that's 
it's pretty clear why the Jews hand him over. They, they want the state to kill Jesus. They don't want to just, you know, they don't want to kill him by stoning for a couple of reasons. First off, that's going to be more public and it would happen inside the city. So a riot is way more likely. So they want him killed outside the city, which means crucifixion. They, they might not be able to drag him out, but the state can. And secondly, crucifixion is just more shameful. They want, they want this rabble rouser to get killed naked, outside the city, alone, shamefully. And so Jesus is handed over to Pilate, and, and anyone you know, who's been watching the, this whole trial, trial sequence knows what that means, that Jesus is headed to Pilate. And so it's here where we see something really profound happen in Judas. Something, something happens in him, and he somehow wants to take back what he's done. And this is where that complexity comes out, that, that so many of those directors kind of latch on to, the, the complexity of Judas. What's going on with him? Is, is this repentance, remorse? What? So Judas goes back to the chief priests and the elders, and he offers to give them the money back, right? And, and, and the reason is that he, he says that I, I've spilled innocent blood, so I've sinned. I've sinned against Yahweh. I've sinned against God. I want to hand back this money. I realize, you know, Jesus doesn't deserve to die. Uh, his kingdom turned out to be pretty disappointing, but he didn't deserve to die. And he might have stolen a lot of popularity from the authorities, but he didn't deserve to die. He was innocent. And so he's trying to give back the money. But the question I have is, what does he stand to gain? What does he stand to gain by giving back the money? The betrayal already happened. So what, what does he think this is going to do. I think he's trying to rid himself of responsibility. If he keeps the money, then he profits from Jesus's death. He benefits from Jesus's death if he keeps the money. If he gives it back, then he gives back whatever benefit he has from Jesus's death. So it's like, well, if I'm not benefiting, then I'm not really responsible, right? It's this wild mental gymnastic thing that he's trying to do. And he's not the only one who's going to do it by the time Jesus is killed. So Pilate, the, the governor that Jesus has just handed over to, he's going to do something along the same lines. He's going to try Jesus and realize, like, this guy isn't guilty of anything. But he fears the people. He feel, fears a riot. And so he has this weird moment where he goes over to a basin of water and just says, I wash my hands of this. Like, oh, good, you're not responsible anymore. Like, as though this does anything, you know? But he, he, again, does this weird mental gymnastic thing and says, I wash my hands of this. I'm not responsible anymore. Don't hold me responsible for this. So Judas and Pilate both, they, they try to get rid of their guilt through these weird sort of pointless gestures. No, see, I gave the money back, so I'm, not, you know, I'm, I'm fine now. The chief priests and the elders are actually going to do the same thing. So there's this almost laughable moment here where the chief priests and the elders, they pick up the money and they say, we probably shouldn't use this for the temple. It's unclean money. Like, they admit that it's blood money. That, that, that money was used to break the sixth commandment of, you know, don't kill people, don't murder, you know? They're like, oh, this was used for murdering somebody, so we, should, we probably shouldn't use this for the temple, right? Like, you did that, though. You, made, you paid it out to somebody to kill them. Now you happen to have it back. And, and they implicitly admit their own guilt. And so they buy a cemetery with the money. Unclean place. Bodies go there. We're going to use unclean money to buy an unclean place. We're going to buy a cemetery. 
Or again, you're, you're running into this just bizarre, almost laughable mental gymnastics of people trying to, to not face responsibility. They killed Jesus. Now, Pilate and the chief priests and the elders, they're all going to remain completely self-deluded, as far as we can tell from the text. All of them are going to sleep well at night. Maybe Pilate will be a little bit disturbed because of his wife. But Judas will realize what they don't. The chief priests and the elders, they turn to him, and they, he's offering the money back. You know, like, please, let me not be guilty anymore. And they just say, take care of that yourself. Take care of that yourself. See to it yourself. And of course he can't. He can't see to it himself. He, he can't reverse his responsibility in the death of Christ. So he hangs himself. At the last moment between the religious authorities, Pilate and Judas, he's the most honest. He hangs himself. They aren't the only ones responsible for the death of Christ. Christ died to save sinners. Which means that the reason Jesus died, we provided that reason. Judas wanted the kingdom, but he didn't want to face his responsibility. So there in chapter 27, you have Judas, the, the Jewish leadership pilot, they all end up creating this image of, of what it is to be rejected by God, of, of the kind of, of yes, the, the sort of, of person that is rejected in the end. And then Matthew gives us a strange quotation there in, in chapter 27. He's quoting, he says, from the prophet Jeremiah, they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the, the Lord directed me. So there's a lot of disagreement about what this means because this verse is not found in the Bible. It's, it's a composite quotation. So it's, it's a bunch of verses that he's all putting together all at once. And, and most of the content comes from Jeremiah. The first quote actually comes from Zechariah. And it is very difficult to discern what it means, and there's lots of disagreement. And so I'm going to present what I, what I think is, is the general sense. I'm not going to go into that much detail because I just don't know. But I'm going to, to present what I think is pretty clear, though, about, about what it's saying. Um, it's a verse that Matthew is cobbling together to, because he's trying to show, like, he's, he's showing the connection between a lot of different themes throughout the scriptures. And so he, he sort of makes this composite. And all these themes come together to say that God's judgment is coming. God is dissolving the old people to form the new. And so what he's giving us is this, this image at the end in this chapter of Judas, the chief priests and the elders, all of them doing these mental gymnastics to avoid the reality of their guilt, and all of them are part of the rejected people. In one of the passages that's quoting, there's a pot that's thrown into the temple, much like Judas throws the 30 pieces of silver and it's shattered. And it's this image of the people of God being dissolved, being handed over to a judgment, which turned out to be exile. 
And so Matthew's bringing that up again and saying, like, a judgment is coming. God is dissolving the old to create a new. And so what sets apart those who belong to the new people? We can almost look at Judas and just reverse it. Disciples seek the kingdom by following the way the kingdom comes. They hear the words of Jesus that all who would follow him must take up their cross and they do it. They walk by obedient trust in Christ because yes, it means suffering, but it also means life. Jesus says that anyone who would keep his life, who would live for profit, who would only follow Jesus because they think that Jesus is going to put them on top, anyone who would only follow Jesus so long as Christianity never becomes marginalized in our country, anyone who would only follow Jesus as long as he never asks any of the, anything of them, anyone who would keep his life will lose it in the end. But anyone who loses his life for the sake of Christ will find it. The cross is the way to life. That is the ultimate paradox of the Christian faith. The cross is not death. It is life. So we seek the kingdom by following the way the kingdom comes, by picking up our cross. We do it by putting ourselves under the lordship of Christ. Disciples seek the kingdom by worshiping its king. Disciples put everything under the rulership of Christ. They question the outcomes they are living for. They question their dreams. They question how they organize their time. They question how, how their ideas of health. They question their ideas of success. They ask, what would the Lord have of me here? And over time, they begin to see how the reign of Jesus is, is not this exacting, merciless, no fun, dusty thing. It is life. It is the way to wisdom. It is the way to hope. And sometimes the way to hurt. But we rejoice in our persecution because it is a joy to be counted worthy to share in the suffering of the king. Disciples seek the kingdom by worshiping its king. And disciples seek the kingdom by facing our responsibility. It is not just the chief priests, the elders, Judas, and Pilate that are responsible for the death of Christ. Christ came to us because there was something we needed saving from. So disciples put aside any notions of innocence. The freedom of God's grace begins with the admission that we are slaves to our sin. That it is against the Lord and the Lord only that we have done wrong. And we don't try to take our punishment into our own hands because there's a sense in which Judas's hanging is itself an avoidance of responsibility. Instead, we're eventually going to see in the person of Peter someone shattered by their own sin and weeping. And it is that disciple who's brought back into the fold, not because he didn't fail. He did fail. But because he repented and trusted in the Lord. Let's pray. God, we take a moment to acknowledge that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, in the things that we have done, and the good that we have failed to do.
Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us by the mercy that you made available in Jesus. Soften our hearts. Show us how we are wronging others. How we are, are failing to, to follow your way. And help us to rejoice in the forgiveness that you give. Lord, I pray that we would not be skittish about obedience. But that we would pick up our cross and follow you. I pray that we would not be ashamed of being submissive to our Lord. But that we would trust in you. That we would give our loyalty to you. That we would turn away from our old ways of life follow in the freedom that your grace gives. Thank you, Lord, for saving traitors like us. Amen.